A state senator faces a federal investigation and a discussion on TANF funds. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of November 11th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. So we've got several news items to get to this week. First, let's talk about State Senator Brian Kelsey. So Joel had a story this past week in which he was able to report uh, as an exclusive that Brian Kelsey is the subject of a federal grand jury investigation right now uh, based on some of his campaign finance transactions from a couple years ago when he he unsuccessfully ran for Congress. So Joel, catch us up on uh, what is going on with that, what you found, and then what we are still waiting to learn. So the latest is essentially that we have three people, um, two of which are on the record, uh, confirming that they were interviewed by the uh, FBI or, or federal agents of some sort. Uh, the, the two people on the record were former Lieutenant Governor Ron Ramsey and Nashville at-large Councilman Steve Glover. We also talked to a current lawmaker who uh, wanted to speak freely and didn't want to go on the record, so just confirmed um, on background which essentially means where we can attribute something but not necessarily to a name that they were in uh, interviewed by agents. So uh, so we have we have Ramsey, we have Glover, we have this other person in the background all saying FBI agents have come and spoken to them in recent months. That's right. About Brian Kelsey potentially their dealings with his campaign account or, yeah, or what so, were the nature of those? So things? essentially uh, all of these discussions were because uh, of a series of financial transactions in 2016 related to Brian Kelsey's uh, failed bid for Congress. Um, in that campaign, uh, State Senator Kelsey was taking campaign money in his campaign state campaign account uh, and sort of moving it around in a very weird way. We saw several lawmakers uh, have financial transactions that were either going to or coming from Kelsey's state campaign account and then kind of also having corresponding uh, contributions to the federal account. Uh, you throw in there some very confusing and uh, unusual interactions with a political action committee uh, uh, that was for a local restaurant called The Standard, uh, where uh, several lawmakers frequent, as well as um, this conservative group called the American Conservative Union, who is buying radio ads in, in benefit of Brian Kelsey, throw all that in a big pot. And there's just some unusual things. My colleague at the time, Dave Boucher, and I reported about this in 2017. We had um, a national group that we interviewed who said, essentially, it looks like what they're trying to do is create a straw donor scheme. Uh, for those that don't know what straw donors are, think of like if you uh, are a gun buyer and you're trying to get a gun for somebody who is a felon who is prohibited from buying a weapon. Same thing with campaign donations. If you want to give money to a campaign, you have a limit. But if you've reached that limit and you have a friend who you pass the money through, that would be essentially a straw donation. So at this point, what is what is Brian Kelsey saying about all this? Kelsey has said, I welcome any investigation. He says that everything was done with legal, um, uh, you know, uh, cons he, he consulted with lawyers. He hasn't denied flat out that he is the subject of an investigation. Um, we've interviewed several other people who haven't really confirmed or denied. So uh, it's been interesting to say the least. We've also been trying to find um, the exact nature of uh, some of the questions 
questions. We haven't gotten uh, too much detail, but it does sound it was br- very Brian Kelsey centric. Um, there are a, a few other things worth noting, and um, uh, essentially, th- there are a lot of players involved in all of this, and they they, they touch on um, some of these conservative Republican donors like Andy Miller, who took a, a handful of lawmakers on uh, out of country um, uh, five day tour uh, of Europe to teach them about Islamophobia. Um, that was several years ago. There are also other uh, lawmakers involved in including Glenn Cassida, who uh, is the former House Speaker, who gave some money to the Standard and had some financial interactions with Kelsey himself. Um, And then the last person to keep note of is Brian Kelsey's current wife is uh, a woman by the name Amanda Bunning. Uh, She got married to Kelsey in January of 2018. All of these transactions occurred before that. And Brian Kelsey uh, and her, I don't know the status of their relationship at that point, but she is the signatory on several documents from the American Conservative Union. Uh, and, and the most interesting part about that, and I was told by a Republican source, normally when you are appearing before a grand jury, if it's something that you are implicating your spouse on, you can plead essentially the fifth. But because this predates their marriage, they can't claim that. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, we are, we're going to wait and see what happens with that. But we also have uh, some more campaign finance related legal problems uh, in the news. I guess this is probably a good thing for him. But uh, former Representative Jeremy Durham, who had gotten hit with what? Four hundred and fifty plus thousand dollars. Sixty-five, yeah. Four hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars in campaign finance penalties a few years ago has now had that reduced. Well, a judge wants it to be wants reduced. it to be reduced to one hundred and ten thousand dollars. That's right. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the the ramifications of of that reduction if that goes through. I know you have talked to um, some some people at the legislature about potentially tightening some of that. For us campaign finance dweebs, this was a heck of a week. Um, yeah, so a uh, an, an administrative law judge has been considering Jeremy Durham's case. Essentially, the Registry of Election Finance several years ago fined Durham after an audit found that he had spent money on everything from custom suits uh, to spa products and uh, sunglasses. They said that he broke the campaign finance laws. They throw $465,000 fine against him. Durham box it it and says, I'm going to appeal the case. This has been the long appeal. Uh, so an ALJ comes out, his name is Steve Darnell, uh, recently, and says essentially the registry went excessive. It was too high of fines. And also the state's campaign finance laws are kind of broad. Example, the judge brings up. Uh, there are many, so uh, this is just one. He says at one point, if Durham were to buy his and did buy his um, uh, gun permit, with his campaign money, as long as it was part of his uh, his you know campaign platform, or he needed a gun for safety, he's not violating the campaign finance law. Well, there's some disagreement about that, and I, I kind of posed an unusual and absurd question for the sake of it, because that ruling would essentially mean that if a pro-choice person were to use campaign funds to buy an abortion, it should be legal. Well, that that did not please people that I asked that question to, but or. Or let's say like you're Rick Staples and you're in favor of sports betting. That's right. You can just go spend all your campaign money to under Darnell's ruling. That would be applicable.
unacceptable. But uh, I talked to a couple of lawmakers, including Lieutenant Governor McNally, uh, House Speaker Cameron Sexton, and even uh, Governor Bill Lee, and they all kind of are saying, well, maybe we need to you know, reconsider the laws. They're not necessarily saying uh, that they're all in, um, but it's the most movement discussion that I've actually heard them say on the subject of revisiting the state's campaign finance laws, which are at best very loose. Uh, and and Darnell's ruling really kind of gives any lawmaker that wants to just use the law and, and ignore it kind of the pathway forward. So uh, we'll see if, if action will be taken this year in the legislative session on the subject, but uh, we will continue to monitor it. Joining us today on the podcast are Tennessean investigative reporters Anita Wadwani and Mike Riker. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Happy to be here. We are going to have a uh, deep dive discussion into what uh, the the three of you guys have been reporting a lot about. Uh, Natalie, why don't you uh, give listeners a little recap of some of the the highs and lows of some of your recent reporting on this uh, TANF issue? Yes. So the last almost three weeks now, two, two and a half weeks, uh, for the three of us have sort of been consumed with reporting on TANF, which is the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, which is a federal block grant Tennessee receives um, that is intended to help poor working families, to help them find and retain jobs, keep them in work, keep the family units together, uh, things like that. And all of this started with um, the Beacon Center essentially coming to me and saying, hey, we've we've discovered that Tennessee has a reserve of $732 million uh, from its TANF block grant that it has not been using, that it's just essentially sitting there and, and it has developed this reserve um, pretty quickly over the last few years. Um, and the Beacon Center, for those of you who are unaware, is a, is a fiscally conservative think tank. So it was a little surprising to see um, them coming up with this information and calling out the state on it. But that is what happened. And so essentially the three of us have been tasked with taking a deep dive into uh, what happened, how how we got here, what the TANF program is, uh, how other states are spending that money and what Tennessee could be doing. Um, so Anita and Mike, how about you guys chime in with sort of what some of the, the main takeaways have been the last couple of weeks and what we found? One of the things we found, which I think is, is pretty important, is that other states have been using this money in ways that Tennessee could to serve more people and has chosen not to. So I'll give you two examples. Um, there are two separate funding streams. They're both uh, block grants. One is the Child Care Development Fund and one is a Social Services Block Grant. So from these TANF or, or welfare funds, states can transfer um, a certain percentage to these other block grants to do to serve um, a wider population with more services, things like subsidized child care or um, grants to combat the opioid crisis. And so when we started looking into this, we found that Tennessee simply wasn't doing those things. They were leaving their uh, TANF allotment from the federal government on the table when other states have been um, using it in much more creative ways. In fact, Tennessee has the largest unspent balance out of all states. Um, in 2018, that was at $580 million. Uh, New York was next at 513. Um, 
now it's higher. It's seven hundred and thirty-two million. So, and it, and our our population compared to those states is at least New York and Pennsylvania is is significantly smaller. In the case of Pennsylvania, I think we're about half the size. New York, maybe we're about th- a third of the size. M- more reserves than any of them. Right. Right. So. We're, we took a look at the spending, too, of TANF over the years to figure out when when the spending dropped. Um, and you can see there was a really big drop around 2013, 2014, and it accelerated around 2015. Uh, there was one year when the spending in the program dropped by 40% just year to year. So it raises some really interesting questions about how they're spending the money and what they're doing and, and not doing. And uh, Go ahead. I, I was just going to ask, so what's been the response from from the governor, their office, the, the agencies that you're looking at? You know, have they essentially just said, hey, we're holding this back in case there is another recession? Um, what are what are they saying? Well, that was that was the initial response. So, you know, Mike and Anita had done a lot of um, digging into this data and, and, and Mike realizes, you know, we have we have more in our reserve than any others state. And um, essentially, we we put this information out there. And at first, they say, well, we, we are a fiscally conservative state. We are responsible. We're saving for um, an economic downturn. And, um, and, and you know, then we, we just continue to analyze what other states are doing. And that argument sort of unravels a little bit when you see how staggering it is that we have this much money, which you know, if Tennessee spent, according to the Beacon Center, $71 million in TANF funds last year, uh, we have more than 10 years worth of TANF expenses put away, which I don't know what, what kind of economic downturn would last that long. Um, th- that, that would be a major problem. But essentially, the, the governor, the Department of Human Services, uh, some Republican lawmakers, at first their their reaction was we have to save for this. But now um, the governor has has sort of tweaked that a little bit. He uh, the governor's office would dispute that he has changed course, but it does seem that way. And now the governor is saying we're actually going to use more of this reserve money. Um, the only thing they've announced so far is that they are going to put about seventy million of it this coming budget year from the reserve towards uh, funding more no- nonprofits through through TANF block grants. But they but they do say that they are going to be developing a strategy. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a fund uh, unlike many other dollars that we receive from the federal government, where if you don't spend it, you get to keep it, right? Um, I, I believe in other scenarios in, in state government and, and federal funding, you, you either get it or you lose it, or if you use it or lose it. Um, this is unique in some sense. Is that right? Yeah, and, and Anita can can speak to the Child Care Development Fund, uh, which is, is one of those use it or lose it grants, but she and Mike discovered that that we are losing a lot of money by not spending it through that fund. What, what did you find specifically uh, data-wise through that? Yeah, so unlike the TANF fund, which can simply there's no um, there's no rule barring states from simply accumulating uh, unspent funds in their TANF reserves in perpetuity, but there is there are other rules for a child care development block grant fund, and like TANF, that is a lump sum of money that comes from the federal government each year. It is supposed to be sent, uh, spent on um, helping working and even middle-class families pay for child care. Um, and that money comes with a use it or lose it, like Joel said, provision. 
um, when we took a look at some of those um, some of that spending history, we found that Tennessee has left so far $214 million um, of those child care block grant funds uh, on the table since 2015. And so under the that kind of user lose it provision, those funds are are gone. The other thing I wanted to mention is that child care fund uh, is particularly interesting because the federal government has infused um, that fund with more than $2 billion over the last two years. So every st- state, including Tennessee, has seen a huge infusion of money to their child care block grant. In Tennessee, that's meant $66 million extra each year for the last two years that is going to a fund that the state has not been able to spend for years. Um, we are on track right now to have spent very little of those funds for this year. There's $85 million left that the state has less than a year to spend. And this is why, while there's a child care crisis for, for many people, right? And that's what's prompted some outrage from folks. We know that there is a child care crisis in many cities across Tennessee. We know parents are struggling to pay for child care. Uh, Nashville is actually officially designated a child care desert because there aren't enough child care slots for parents, even if they could afford them. Uh, two weeks ago, the commissioner of the Department of Human Services, Danielle Barnes, spoke with a, a Nashville audience, and she specifically pointed out that child care uh, is among the top three concerns that people bring to her agency. The latest news that I've seen uh, is that uh, Congressman Steve Cohen has written a letter to the Lee administration uh, specifically asking a bunch of questions and setting a deadline. Uh, It sounds like that deadline is still ongoing uh, as of this recording. Uh, Tell me what have been some of the other reaction from either other lawmakers or, you know, uh, people you guys have talked to. Well, at, at first, you know, there was, um, unsurprisingly, there was condemnation by some Democrats about this, um, certainly by Senator State Senator Jeff Yarbrough and um, House Minority Leader Karen Camper's office, um, and even early on from Republican Representative Brian Terry. But since then, we've seen a few more Republicans get on board with the idea that the state could be using more of its money while still maintaining a healthy reserve. So uh, Representative Robin Smith... Um, State Senator Kerry Roberts, they're all Republicans who in the last week have said, uh, we really could be using more of this money and we should be looking to figure out how we can spend this money. Um, The new House Speaker, Cameron Sexton, he also has indicated he's interested in looking at ways to spend the money. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally in the Senate, he he hasn't closed the door to it, but he has repeatedly said... um, stockpiling this much money, putting it in reserve for a rainy day is a, I think he said it was a perfectly acceptable practice. Is that what the statement said? Yes, something like that. And he also said that he wanted to thoroughly vet, that's a quote, any new proposals uh, to spend some of this money. So, you know, to me, that signaled some resistance. Um, yeah, so so we're we're going to continue to f- to follow what the legislature does. It does seem like there is a little bit of momentum, you know, the the last couple of weeks um, to figure out how to spend that money. With the governor's office, of course, saying they're they're developing a strategy, and he said that the the seventy million dollars that is going to be earmarked for um, nonprofits to use is is only 
I think he said one part of a broader strategy. So it, it seems like they at least plan to to announce more ways to use this money. And I'd say one other thing about the response. I'm getting a lot of emails from readers yeah. kind of encouraging us to dig into this. And it's it's one of the topics that uh, has surprised me, how much reader interest we have. You know, people people want to know what happened to these funds and and why aren't they being used? Yeah, about about every day, I think we're probably getting emails from from folks uh, saying thank you for for looking into this and and keep keep looking. Well, thank you guys for coming on. Uh, I'm sure we will continue to to uh, you know highlight some of the reporting that you guys uh, have in the next couple of days and weeks. So thanks again for for laying all this out. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Don Bowles was a hard-hitting investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic in the 60s and 70s. But if the name rings a bell with you, it's likely because of one thing, the way he died. But there's more to the story of Don Bowles than his murder. And more than 40 years after his death, we discovered cassette tapes of his phone calls. In those tapes was a story that haunted him until the day he died. I'm reporter Richard Rellis, and this is Rediscovering. Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Our new podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com launches with two episodes on Tuesday, November 5th. This week on the podcast, we have Brett Kelman. He is our healthcare reporter here to talk about a couple stories he had this past week that uh, certainly made some news. Uh, Brett, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's start, I guess, in the order you reported these things. So you were sitting in a routine budget hearing. I think you maybe described it in your story as a rapid-fire uh, budget hearing in which the governor's office um, gets updates from each of the state departments about how much money they expect to, to need in the upcoming budget year. And during this hearing, uh, this figure came out from TenCare that... What is it? 52 women had died postpartum last year who did not have 10 care coverage. Is that essentially what that, that number was? Yes. Um, so Joel and Natalie know these hearings way too well. They are often pretty dull and every Never. agency has one. And Always exciting. It's often about like what potential cuts could be made to an agency. In this case, 10 care came in and was proposing new coverage. And what they said is that we want to extend our postpartum coverage from two months to a full year because of a bunch of what were described as preventable deaths. And the number they said was that 52 women had died within a year of giving birth almost entirely after their 10-care coverage had expired, which would mean a woman has 10-care coverage when she's pregnant, she gives birth, two months later her coverage goes away, and then within the next 10 months she passes away. And TenCare saw this as a problem that with a proportionally small amount of money they could potentially fix. Um, they have proposed that it would cost about $19 million to, expend, to extend postpartum coverage through the year. And of that, the federal government would pay for like $13 million if they approve the program. Your jaw appeared to have dropped when you heard that. Um, what was the governor's or anybody in the administration uh, on that front panel, uh, what was their reaction when they heard about it? I kind of think everyone's jaw dropped. So I initially heard the number as 15, yeah. which I thought was a startling amount of death. And then I listened again and realized it was 52. And, you know, TenCare just kind of revealed this in what felt like a routine budget hearing 
but the governor immediately interjected with at least a couple of questions. It kind of seemed like no one was prepared for the startling statistic of 52 women passing away in a year. Um, maybe it shouldn't have startled us. Maybe this is something we should know more about, both as journalists and you know state leaders. But it it definitely caught a lot of people off guard. And it's interesting that it's just now coming out, um, that it didn't come out in conversations around the Medicaid block grant. So for example, TenCare in those conversations talked about um, how they wanted to extend dental insurance to women postpartum because research has shown that um, there, there are issues with, with oral bacteria related to passing between the mother and the baby in those years and, and they want, or in those months, and, and they wanted to extend coverage to those women. But never once did we hear anything about uh, this this figure of um, postpartum deaths. And they have made a point to say they don't want to wait until uh, this block grant um, agreement is potentially worked out. They want to go ahead and make sure that this coverage is added for women in the next budget year. Um, the governor has said, you know, he can't commit to that at this point, but he is very interested in seeing that happen. I, I agree. I think it's surprising that this hasn't come up as part of the block grant proposal because 10 care officials described it as the type of benefits extension they could do under a block grant. Which I think is much more compelling to say when you're talking about benefit extensions to say, hey, these women are dying, we could extend, you know, coverage to them versus they need like dental insurance. Right. When they have been selling the block grant to a public that has not been super receptive, where where was this? It it seems like this is all just rolled out in a strange order Speaking and not of, the most compelling way. <laughs> we had another news dump from 10 Care at the end of the week. Um, other information that didn't come out months ago when supposedly 10 Care knew about it uh, was that there was a data breach and um, the personal information of potentially 44,000 10 Care um, members could have been compromised. Brett, tell us about. Uh, when and how you found that out and what what that means going forward. Sure. So if you uh, work in any type of professional office setting, at this point, you're probably familiar with a phishing attempt. We which, just took our quiz on that recently. Yeah, we, I think I we, passed it. like most people, get quite a few attempts. We do. Um, people with bad intent try to send you a fake email in an effort to get access to your email account. Um, it is the most common attempt at hacking. Apparently, in May, TenCare's pharmacy benefits manager, which is a company called Magellan, one of their employees fell for this. And someone, somewhere, got access to their email account. And in that email account, among many, many emails, was data about 44,000 TenCare beneficiaries that included their names and their social security numbers and some of their benefits information and even like what drugs they were taking. Now, that means that that hacker could have that information, and that information could be used for nefarious purposes. Uh, Magellan, according to a news release that came out on Friday, discovered the hack in, I think, about a week, and then figured out the 10Care data had potentially been jeopardized a little bit after that, and then told 10Care on, I think, September 11th which really raises the question of why 10Care did not tell the public and the affected people until Friday afternoon. That's two full months when potentially their social security numbers could be in nefarious hands and they didn't know. Um, did 10Care give an explanation for why? 
Uh, TenCare said they needed some time to figure out who was affected to better understand the breach and to prepare the notices they had to mail out, um, which are all things that I would understand the agency did need to do. I would have some questions on if that justifies a two-month gap. The mail is a little slow sometimes, but hey, well, they, sometimes, they mail the notices on Friday, Joel. <laughs> You know, sometimes we have we have ten care members stuff who got lost in the mail, so could have happened. You know, I have heard of some instances like that. Yes. Either way, uh, this was not a good week for uh, those two at least stories. Um, but we appreciate you staying on top and and keeping readers informed on them. So, well, I am hoping to find out a lot more about both of these incidents in the next coming two weeks or so. So let's let's hope there's some more to read. Thanks again, Brett. Thank you. And for this week's Notebook Dump, Kelsey Ketron, the daughter of former state senator Bill Ketron, who is now the Rutherford County mayor, was charged with 71 felony counts related to an ongoing insurance fraud investigation and was jailed for multiple days this week until she bonded out. During the governor's administration budget hearings, the Tennessee Department of Safety and Homeland Security recommended hiring 80 additional people to help cut down wait times at driver's license facilities throughout Tennessee. And finally, next week, the House will start holding its first uh, front-end budget hearings in which they have state agencies appear before uh, members of the legislature so they can consider how to form the state budget ahead of the upcoming legislative session. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to rate us. Uh, We will be back next week with our usual uh, weekly roundup of news and and guests. Uh, Thanks again for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.